Good evening, Fellowship College. Welcome back. Raise your hand if you got a honey butter chicken biscuit. Come on. Hey, Whataburger came in clutch. We were, we were worried about it. They usually stop serving them at a certain time, but they, they held on to them for us, so we appreciate that. Um, man, excited to be back. Welcome back. You guys already have a whole week under your belt, so uh, pumped for tonight. Glad to see all of you. Let's stand together. We get to worship a risen king this evening. Let us join our voices to praise the spotless lamb, Jesus Christ, who has redeemed us from sin and death. We, the redeemed, will sing praises and shout for joy because in Christ the Lamb, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins in accordance with the grace, with the riches of his grace. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. To him who sits on the throne, we give praise this hour and forever. Let's sing together this evening. There is now a hope that lasts beyond our days. For the one that once was buried lives again. Now the tomb is bare and empty and the stone is rolled away. Praise the risen one who overcame the grave. All you broken-hearted, all you worn and weak Come find living water, everlasting stream To the wandering spirit, lost and searching, wanting something more Find the risen King who overcomes the world let there be dancing in the darkness And let our song break through the night Lift your voice and sing that Christ is King For Jesus is alive No more condemnation, no more doubt and fear for our sin and shame, they have no power here. In His resurrection, perfect love has set the captives free. Praise the risen King who stands in victory. Yeah, let there be dancing in the darkness, and let our song break through the is undone hallelujah jesus has won hallelujah we overcome oh in jesus oh in jesus hallelujah death is undone hallelujah jesus is one hallelujah we overcome oh in jesus oh in Jesus hallelujah Hallelujah! 
microphone. You guys can take a seat. We're so glad to see y'all's faces. Mm -hmm. It's been so long. Mm -hmm. um, so we have some announcements for you guys. Kennedy is going to start us off. Okay, I'm actually going to start us off with small groups. Oh, no, that was my bad. I'm so sorry, <laughs> no, that's okay. Ali's going to start us with I'm If Gathering. I'm going to start us. Guys, we're just really excited that you're here. So, yep, so we have If Gathering. Um, okay, so women in the room, um, we're going to be talking to you. Um, so down in Dallas in a couple months, um, there's this thing called If Gathering. Um, it is hosted by Jenny Allen, um, and it is a weekend that is meant to equip women. Um, it's time for them to come and grow deeper in their walk with the Lord, um, get to know one another more. So there are going to be some pretty awesome speakers. Um, Jackie Hill Perry is going to be there. Um, oh my goodness, Jonathan Bakluda. Um, Jenny Allen will speak, and just a bunch of other people. Um, so Kennedy and I, along with a couple other women, are going to be taking uh, 16 students down there for a weekend. And so we're going to be leaving on Friday. Friday morning and coming back late Saturday night. And so it is March 4th uh, through March 5th. Um, it's going to be $230 um, for a person to come. Um, however, that includes um, housing, that includes the ride down, um, and your ticket there. Um, so all you would have to pay is that and then for food. Um, so there are only a couple spots left. Uh, Y'all feel free to sign up with the QR code. There's also a link in our Instagram bio. So that'll be a pretty fun. Y'all should join us. And if y'all have questions about that, you can just find us after the service too, and we can answer those for you. Okay, small groups is what I get to talk to y'all about. I love small groups, and if y'all would sign up for a small group, you would probably love one too, so you should do one this semester. But if you go to this QR code, we have seven that we're offering for this semester, some the same that we were offering last semester, some brand new ones for you to choose from. Um, I wanted to clarify one thing. There's the first one says how to follow Jesus in college, and then the third one, following King Jesus. That one's the Sermon on the Mount. So those are different, even though they have similar titles. And then, did you want to say something about your Reason for God? Yeah, so um, Reason for God is another small group. Um, so we started last semester going through Tim Keller's Reason for God. Um, and so we went through the first half of the book. Anyone is welcome to sign up for it again this semester, but we will be going through the second half of the book. Um, so yeah, it's open to everyone. Um, there are a couple of small groups that are kind of sticking together, but anyone is welcome to join in on, and, and in on any of them. Um, but yeah, this is a quicker rollover than last semester too. So y'all need to sign up soon because small groups are actually launching next Tuesday. So sign up so we can get y'all plugged in where you need to go and get rolling with this semester. Yeah, well, um, those are the announcements that we have for you guys. And I'm a quick pray. So if you'll bow your heads with me. Uh, Lord, um, you are so good to us. God, thank you for every single one of these men and women in this room. Um, Lord, thank you for just bringing us here, for individually speaking into their lives. And God, I just pray that as we enter into this time of worship and hearing Garland talk, that you would just um, soften our hearts to what you have to say for us um, and that we can just worship you and do all this to, to glorify you, Lord. So we thank you um, and we praise you. And um, it's in your son's name that we pray, amen.
is one day in your courts. Better is one day in your house. Better is one day in your courts. Thousands elsewhere. Thousands elsewhere. disciples came to him and he began to teach them saying blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You guys can have a seat. Well, welcome, Fellowship College. So glad to be back uh, with y'all. My name is Garland. We missed y'all over the break. I hope it was a, an awesome break. You had a great time away and a great first week. I'm hopeful that for many of you that are in school, at least, it was a great first week. I saw uh, our team went up to campus on Wednesday and ran into one of you in the union. And uh, the simple question was, uh, how, how's the first week been? This is 
the first day, the first few hours of the Monday, Wednesday, Friday classes, and the guy's response was, I gotta figure out a way to get out of this class I just had. And I was like, that's a good start for the semester for you. Um, so I hope you, uh, hope you had a good, uh, a good break and a good first, uh, good first week for those of y'all that are in school. If you're new with us, if you've transferred in, or this is your first time uh, joining us or first time in a long time, or if you've been around for a while, let me just kind of explain what we do here at Fellowship College. We, we try to take worship of the Lord seriously. And we try to take studying the Bible seriously, and we try to do that in the context of biblical community, but then we try not to take ourselves all that seriously. So that's what we do uh, around here. That's kind of who we are as a ministry. If you've got questions, more questions about that, come ask one of our team. We'd love to, to answer those if you're new uh, with us. Just a, a thought exercise for you and for me as we get started here uh, on our series that we're going to be looking at from now until spring break. I was thinking this week, what is the most impactful or maybe most influential either document or writing or speech that's ever been given in human history, like document or, or speech that's been delivered. And I thought of a few things. I kind of thought of maybe these are some of the most impactful ones on culture that changed, they kind of changed everything, like the Magna Carta, where power was finally taken away, at least somewhat, from the monarch and tried to be given out to uh, representatives of the people. And our, our Constitution is this really impactful, influential document that's changed lots and lots of culture. It's, it has this ideal of what a potential great society could look like that's based on democratic uh, ideals, and it's, it's made a huge impact on uh, human history. And maybe the opposite, the opposite of at least the way our Constitution kind of reads is uh, the, the Communist Manifesto has had a huge impact on world culture. Uh, Karl Marx's famous Communist Manifesto, and it swept the globe literally in a generation, this idea of communism and socialism. And as, as I was thinking about it, I was like, maybe it's, a, maybe it's a speech of some kind. At least in American history, we think about the Gettysburg Address, this, this, this fight by Abraham Lincoln to try to unify a broken nation. And, and thinking about that and thinking about famous speeches that were delivered, it wasn't lost to me. This was Martin Luther King week. We had Martin Luther King Day on Monday. And we still, we hold up the I Have a Dream speech as this amazing vision of what a, a, a nation would look like where we have racial equality. And we've torn down all of these injustices and we still look at it as an incredible model and a motivation that changed so much, at least about how people thought about some of these ideas in our, in our world. I thought maybe it's, a, maybe it's a piece of art that like changed everything. And people, as they saw that art, it changed their concept of that person or it made a huge impact on culture. And what we're gonna do is, for, for better or worse, whether, or not, whether you're a Jesus follower or not in here, there's no denying the impact that the Sermon on the Mount has had in human history. It's famous. Like it's one of the most famous parts of your Bible, the Sermon on the Mount. It's three chapters in the Gospel of Matthew. And this famous sermon is some of, uh, some of Christian's kind of fan favorites. You've got salt and light in there. You've got the Lord's Prayer in there. You've got judge not, lest you be judged. You've got the ending with uh, the, the man who built his house on a rock or a man who built his house on sand. It's got do unto others as you want them to do unto you. It's loaded with famous, famous verses. And yet... Maybe many of you have read it. Maybe many of you have read it multiple times. Sometimes because it's familiar to us, we lose the sense of how provocative it is, how challenging it is, the breathtaking picture that the Sermon on the Mount is offering for what humanity could and should and very well may look like under the banner of a, a new and a different 
King. Uh, there was, a, I read this in, in preparing for this, uh, there was a secular university professor and she had uh, a group of students, they, they weren't a Christian school or anything, and she thought, well, the Sermon on the Mount has made a huge impact on, uh, on culture. And so let's, let's have the students at this secular university read it. And so they did. They sat down to read it and they, she assigned, this is part of their reading, and she, had, she said, write a reflection paper on the Sermon on the Mount and turn it in. And she was surprised by the results because the majority of the students that read the Sermon on the Mount, in their reflection paper, what they said was, we hate it. This is stupid. Like, this is so outrageous. What an idealistic standard that Jesus is setting here. No one could live up to the ideals Jesus is putting forward in the Sermon on the Mount. They thought it was just almost silly that somebody could come and even begin to talk like Jesus talked in the Sermon on the Mount. That was their reaction to this famous famous sermon of Jesus. And what we're gonna see as we study it from now until spring break is the Sermon on the Mount, it offers a breathtaking view of what Jesus's kingdom might look like. He's announcing its inauguration here in this sermon. So we're gonna spend uh, the next uh, few weeks looking at this very famous part of scripture and diving deep into it. Here's where we're going tonight. You've heard them read we're gonna look at what we often call the Beatitudes, or this, these first 10 verses of the Sermon on the Mount. And if you're new with us, uh, what I try to do, I'm calling this the good life, what I try to do at least, and, and most of the time, is give you some kind of an outline for you to take notes with, all right? So uh, here's where we're going tonight. You take notes, A, so that you can remember it. It helps you remember it. But B, so that you can reteach it in your discipleship. As you disciple people, as you lead people, uh, you can also reteach it to yourself, because we're all prone to forget, so uh, when you hear the Bible taught, when you're going to church, take a Bible, take a notebook, take a pen, pencil, whatever you've got, get a note on your, on your phone, let's get to work and, and, and look at the good life as we see it. If you have your Bibles, turn with me, Matthew chapter five, let's look at the Sermon on the Mount. First, we gotta get some context. What's going on in the Sermon on the Mount? Where are we in the story? Well, we're told this. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. Crowds had gathered around Jesus. They've seen him do some amazing things. They see he's speaking with these very provocative things that he's saying. And he has this inner group of disciples that have come and they've sat down as well. And Jesus sat down to teach them. Sitting was the posture of a teacher and a rabbi in Jewish culture. Now here's the thing. Where are we in the story here? You see, when you, when you watch a movie or read a book, when you to partake in a story of some kind. You have to know what the, the rest of that story looks like to understand all the particulars. You have to understand the genre you're in, or otherwise, as you're watching the movie or reading that book, all the little details will go right over your head or you'll misunderstand them or you'll misinterpret them. You have to know the kind of story you're in or it'll change how you experience that story. Like a really good example is like romantic comedies. Uh, when you think about romantic comedies, they have the same story arc. Every single one of them, they're all the exact same. Here's the story arc. You have two people meet, and they begin to fall in love, and then there's some kind of a complication, some kind of a misunderstanding, or they, they have a problem that arises, and then that problem makes it look like they're not gonna get back together, but at the end, they get together, right? That's the story arc of a romantic comedy. And when you go into a romantic comedy, and you know that's the story arc, it changes how you experience the particulars. 
Like when you watch a romantic comedy and they go through their little problem or their miscommunication or their misunderstanding and it looks like everything's falling apart, you're almost amused at it. You almost enjoy it. It's almost comical because you know in the end they're gonna get back together. It's all gonna work out in the end. That's what made La La Land like so difficult was that they don't get together in the end. If you haven't seen it, I'm sorry, I just ruined the movie for you. Uh, they don't get together in the end, and you're expecting it. And so you, you kind of look back on the movie, and you're like, wait, what did you just do to me? Because they're supposed to get together in the end. Now, I actually asked, I texted a couple of college students this week, and I said, what are the romantic comedies that like, college students like, watch and love and know? And this was the list that came back. Is this representative of y'all? Is this decent? Okay, what am I, what's missing on this list? Anything missing? Well, okay, Cinderella. Is, it, is that a romantic comedy? I guess, I guess all Disney movies are kind of romantic comedies. I didn't even know there was a Selena Gomez uh, Cinderella, so you're, in, you're helping me. I'd never heard of To All the Boys I've Ever Loved or whatever. I'd never heard of that. Um, I might have to watch that one now. I heard The Notebook. What else am I missing here? Remember the Titans is definitely the best romantic comedy ever made. Um, like You've Got Mail, is, is that still watched? Do y'all watch You've Got Mail? I see you're sitting alone. You got a girl with you? Oh, no, you got a girl. Okay, you're good. Yeah, good for you. All right, good for you. Um, what, about, what about When Harry Met Sally? Is that one still in? A couple of old school people in the room were like, yeah, that's one of my favorites. All right, so good. So when you're watching these stories unfold, all the, all the, 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 as you experience that story unfolding, you orient to that story because you know what's happening. You know what's going on. And the question then becomes, what's going on in the story with Jesus? Like, where do we find ourselves in this Sermon on the Mount story? And here's, unfortunately, this is what I think most Christians that I talk to, and if, if you ask people that aren't Jesus followers, which might be some of you in the room, what's the story the Bible's telling? Here's what I feel like I hear a lot, and maybe we wouldn't articulate it exactly this way, but this is, I think, the sentiment that I hear from a lot of people I talk to. What's the story the Bible's trying to tell? And it goes something like this. Here's what I hear. Um, there's a, a big God out there. He's really powerful. He made everything, and he gave people a list of rules, and he said, if you obey these rules, then you get to come be with me in heaven. It's gonna be awesome, and if you don't, you go to the other place, and you burn forever. And we hope, we all hope that we can live up to the rules, then we see the rules and we go, it's too, high, too much of a high standard, I can't do that, it's too much, I'm gonna fail, and then we feel like we're destined to the other place, and we hope there's a back door out, and Jesus became the back door out. Now, we wouldn't articulate it that way, but for many of us, that's the, the story that we kind of have in the, in the back of our mind when we think about what's the story of the Bible. Now, here's the problem with that. If that's the story of the Bible, when you come to the Sermon on the Mount, you will then read the Sermon on the Mount as a part of that story, and then what will it become? The Sermon on the Mount will then become just another set of rules for you. In fact, it's gonna take some of the already difficult to follow rules in the Old Testament and make them even harder. So we read the Sermon on the Mount, and we see Jesus and what he's saying, and we say, more rules, more things to follow, more moral demands. Here comes Jesus, and it sounds almost like a buzzkill to life because he took already difficult rules and made them even more difficult. Now, for many of us, and I'll talk a little bit later about how that's how it impacted me, that's how we read the Bible. And the problem is, that's not the context of the Sermon on the Mount. That's not the story the Bible is trying to tell. So what is the context? What is the story? Well, look, flip back a couple pages in your Bible or scroll up on your phone. Look at Matthew 1, 
verse one. So flip over there and see it. How does Matthew begin his gospel? Well, he begins it by connecting Jesus to a much larger story. The very first verse, Matthew comes out of the gate swinging by saying, this is the genealogy of Jesus, and who's he? He's the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. What's, what's he doing? What's Matthew doing? He's saying that Jesus sets in this broader Israel story. Well, what's the broader Israel story? Here it is. God wants to bless the world. He wants the world to experience the riches of his goodness and blessing. But instead, this infection called sin keeps ruining God's good world. And humans have fallen prey to it over and over and over again. God calls a family the family of Abraham, the nation of Israel. And he says, through this family, we're gonna restore the blessing of the world. That's what we're doing. But here's the problem. Israel themselves fell prey to the power of sin. We're looking for somebody who can finally do and finally be what God has been trying to do and be in this world all along, which is blessing the nations and blessing this world through his chosen people. So when Jesus hits the scene, when Jesus comes into the, the, the story in Matthew, we get this note, flip back over to chapter four. We see that Jesus came into the scene and he says, here's the story. We've been waiting for God's good reign to remove this, sin, this thing called sin, to, to eject it, this thing that's got us under its shackles, and instead to bring God's good kingdom into this world. And Jesus, right out of the gate, starts saying things like, Repent. You know why? It's time for God to be king. The kingdom of heaven, it's come near. It's here. Here it is. And he's going to paint a picture of what it looks like when God becomes king on earth as he is in heaven. Commenting on this, a British scholar from the last century said this. He said, the sermon, it describes what human life and human community look like when they come under the gracious rule of God or the kingship of God. This is, what, this is a new way to be human, a new way to do life, not just individually, but together. And he says, and what will it look like? It will look different. Just look at chapters five, six, and seven. Kind of look down at the headings in your Bible. Scroll down on your phone. Look at the headings. Here's the, the vision that Jesus is gonna paint in this sermon of what it looks like when his kingdom comes into this world. It's the kind of kingdom where Instead of retaliating in anger, we yield that anger so we might be forgiving and loving. It's the kind of kingdom that's not shredded by the pain of divorce as my family was, my wife's family, many of your families have been. It's the kind of kingdom where people look at people of the opposite sex and treat them with respect and dignity instead of sexual objects to be idolized and fawned over. It's the kind of kingdom where we radically show forgiveness to even those who wound us and hurt us Instead of retribution, we show an outrageous amount of forgiveness to our enemies. But look at chapter six. It's the kind of kingdom where we don't do any of that for the externals. We're not trying to get noticed. Instead, we have a deep devotion to God that shows up in how we give our things to other people, that shows up in how we pray and talk to him. It's the kind of people who are set free from the anxieties of the rat race of this world because they've set their minds on a different kingdom. Hear this one. It's the kind of kingdom, chapter seven, where we don't walk around hypocritically judging. One of the things our culture so longs to see is a people that will not judge. And Jesus, right out of the gate in chapter seven, says, don't judge, 
lest ye be judged. Here's how, we, here's how we bring a careful critique to our friends. We take the log out of our own eye. It's the kind of kingdom that Jesus says it forces a choice on you. You're either like the wise man who built his house on the rock or the fool who built their house on the sand. This sermon and this inauguration of this kingdom demands of you to make a choice. You either get Jesus in his kingdom, you bend the knee to him as king, the good king, or you don't. And Jesus is painting this amazing picture of what it looks like when his justice, his goodness, his mercy, his love go stampeding through the world through his people. That's the Sermon on the Mount. And it starts with this this series of attitudes or mindsets that Jesus wants us to embody. The vision of the sermon, this grand vision for a new way to be human that can radically change the world. What do I mean by the joy of the sermon? I'm calling this the good life after all. Well, let's look at it. Look at the first 10 verses, chapter five. Verse three, notice the repetition. Jesus keeps saying over and over and over again, blessed are the this, blessed are the that, blessed are the this. This word blessed, it's, it's a hard word for us to translate because we don't walk around saying bless you unless somebody sneezes anymore. We don't use that kind of terminology. Maybe a better way to translate it would be uh, fortunate or favored or happy or blessed. It's literally the good life. Jesus is saying the good life are people that adopt this mindset, poor in spirit. The good life, the happy life is for those who mourn. Now, here's the problem. Check this out. Here's the problem. Look at the list. We've heard it read earlier. Many of you have read this many times in your life, but look at the list. When I look at this list, the good life, mourners. The good life, the meek and lowly, poor in spirit. I look at the list and I go, geez, you got the wrong list. You're wrong. Really? This is the good life? I mean, I, I think I, I would want to rewrite this for him and say, okay, listen, that, that doesn't sound like the good life for any of us in the room. Most of us see this and go, no, that looks like a life that might be painful and difficult. If I was writing this, Jesus, I'd probably say, this is the good life. I mean, it's, it's 2022. This is America. What's the good life? I think for many of us, it would, it would look something like this Blessed are the, the rich, the wealthy. The nice car, the nice house, the nice stuff, the nice vacation house, the nice, the nice vacations. Blessed are the rich. They're the ones who get it. They're the ones who have the good life. Blessed are the beautiful. The ones who people notice, the attractive, the sexually alluring, the ones that get the attention, the ones with the great bodies, that's the ones who really get it. They're the blessed, fortunate ones. Blessed are the, the powerful strong, they don't need anybody else, they can make something of themselves, or they're successful, they know how to get things done, they know how to take charge, everything they do is, is successful, that's the ones who get it, There's, that's, that's who the kingdom should be for, and the popular, and blessed are the popular, fortunate, happy, the good life is for those that are popular, that have lots of friends, and they're not alone, and people know them, and they want to be around them, and they're charismatic, or they're talented, think about it, 
for a lot of us, we think, what'd be the, what's the great life? It's to be super talented, like famous, uh, like famous uh, athletes or famous artists or songwriters that live this great life and have all this money because of, they're just talented. And we go, man, that's a, that's a life that I envy. But blessed are the comfortable. Not showing off, but just everything taken care of. You don't have to worry. You're free from the, the pains of life. Or blessed are the, the well-connected, the well-liked, charismatic, People see them and like them, the funny. I think if we're being honest, most of us would say, that's the good life, and that's it. And I look at the list and I go, what's wrong with that? I mean, come on, Jesus, that's it, that's the good life. Think about it. Just lean in with me here. Most of the things that are on this list are the very things that cause so much of yours and mine, so much of our anxiety and insecurity and worry and competitiveness with other people and this fear of rejection and this fear that we're not living up. I'll speak for me. Like so much of my life, even a lot of my life after I had started following Jesus, for years, much of my life was trying to see this as the good life. Like, if, if people will like me and think that I'm smart, but also think that I'm funny and think that I'm a good pastor and then a, a good teacher, and they think that I do this really well, and they want to spend time with me, and they want to be around me, then that's how I know, and it causes all sorts of insecurity because then you're constantly worried, was that funny enough? Was that good enough? Was that, was, and you're, you're worried, you're running conversations through your head, wondering, did they like that? Was that impressive enough? Or another example for, for my wife and I's life, uh, most all of you, I'm guessing, are in college or right out of college, and right when you got to college, uh, nobody, none of your friends nor you are making any money. Like, you're just all basically making the same thing, which is hardly anything. Then what happens is in your late 20s and in your early 30s, uh, people start getting promotions, and then they start getting more money, and then they get more money, and then they get more money, and uh, they can then get bigger houses and nicer cars and nicer vacations, and their kids can do more fun things and more cool things. And Sarah and I, we, I work at a church. I don't know if you know this, but we're pretty rich, those of us in ministry. And uh, we started noticing our friend's level of life kind of became more this, the good life. And we're over here counting everything and on a budget and just trying to make it all work. And I found my wife and I looking at this good life and almost being envious of it. These things on this screen, they, actually, they promise you and I the good life. And yet, these are so often the very things that just suck the life right out of us. They fill us with anxiety and insecurity and worry and competition. I think Jesus is, is really on to something here. His list will look nothing like this. I think it's because he's gonna say this in chapter six. He's offering a life a true good life that's actually free from the insecurity and the rat race, the anxiety of all of this. Can you imagine? Can you imagine a life where the things on this list aren't constantly owning you and consuming you and making you worried? I think Jesus is really, really onto something when he offers us this mindset, this vision of the good life. He says this is where true joy, true happiness is found. When you adopt this mindset, you'll taste it. Now, here's what we're gonna do. Um, we're gonna get into the weeds here, look at the particulars. Now, we're gonna do some straight 
straight hardcore Bible study methods here. We're going to do a little bit of observations and some interpretations, a little more observations and interpretations. When you study the Bible or study a book of the Bible or a full letter of the Bible or something, the best thing to do is to read the whole thing. So read the Sermon on the Mount all the way through several times. Then you go get in the weeds. You start noticing little things. Why is the verb change here? What are the connecting words? What's the tone of this? You just do observations in the passage. Let's do a few observations. Get your pen, your pencil, whatever you got. Let's, get, let's see some of these things on the pages. We wanna make sense of what Jesus is saying here. First, I want you to notice this. The, the first and the last of the Beatitudes, these mindsets Jesus wants us to adopt, the first and the last are followed with the exact same wording. This forms what Bible nerds, scholars call an inclusio, or a bracket, really a parenthesis. So bracket around verse three, open a bracket around verse three, and close the bracket at the end of verse 10. They're meant to be read together. They form a unit. Jesus wants you to see these together. Now notice the verb. Notice the shift in verb tense. The first beatitude and the last beatitude both have present tense verbs. Somehow note that in, in your Bible, present tense verbs. But all the middle verbs are future tense. Notice that. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven, but then they will be comforted. They will inherit the earth. What is Jesus doing with this? Why did Matthew record it this way? What's the the significance? Think about it. When you bend the knee to Jesus as king, when you understand the good king, he becomes your savior and your Lord, then you are experiencing in the present the blessings of the kingdom. You're walking with the king. You got the good life now. What about the future? Don't think this is about going to heaven, okay? This is not, yeah, you have your life now, then one day you go to heaven. That's not what he means. What does he mean? This vision of God pushing back the darkness in the world, this vision of God bringing the blessing of his presence to all the world, it's the vision the Bible is longing to see happen. And the story the Bible ends with one day God accomplishing that vision. It's this amazing picture where the creation itself is set free from the pain of sin. And he's saying, you taste now the kingdom, but you're awaiting this day where my kingdom will be on earth as it is in heaven. It's an amazing picture of what we're wrapped up in. Literally, Paul, in Romans chapter eight, reflecting on this, he says this. He says, the creation itself, the world that we live in, is subjected to frustration in the hopes that one day it'll be set free. He says, and we also... We groan inwardly waiting for the day when God will restore everything. There's an already that we experience of the kingdom and we're looking for that day. That's what you're caught up in when you join this king and his kingdom. There's a present reality and we wait for the day when he will restore all things and he'll bring his goodness into the world. Now, let's look at each of these individually quickly. Notice them. He says, blessed are the poor. The poor in spirit, what does that mean? To be empty or impoverished in something is the opposite of to be filled with it or have it to an abundance. So to have an abundant, arrogant spirit, Jesus is saying, that's not of my kingdom. To have this mindset that I don't need anybody, I've got everything I need, I can do it, I can solve it, I'm, I know. Jesus says, I want you to come with a poverty in spirit, recognizing your desperate need for me. He says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. To see the the brokenness in the world, the pain in the world, the injustice in the world, the the, the bitterness in the world because of sin, and to see it 
and to mourn over it, but not just out there, but in here. He says, those are the ones who, who begin to understand. Blessed are the meek. What is meekness? It's not weakness. It's not to be pitiful, okay? What is, what is meekness? Meekness is to have strength and yet set it aside to rely on the strength of another. That's what meekness is. And Jesus says, we, we, we literally have a saying in the south of, of, of America, and many of you probably grew up on this, the saying goes something like this, you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you don't need nothing from nobody, I got this. That's strength. And Jesus says, you may very well have that, but recognize your need for me and let me work in and through you. To hunger and thirst for the Greek word for righteousness is dikaiosune. As a noun, we translate it as righteousness. As a verb, we often translate it as to justify. It has the idea of God's right standard, God's goodness, God's rightness in the world. His justice. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice in the world. God's justice. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Our, our culture, especially in America right now, we talk a big game about tolerance. We talk a big game about, uh, about empathy and compassion and listening and welcoming the outcast. And yet, I see very little of it in our culture. We talk a big game about tolerance, but then we tolerate only those that agree with us. We tolerate only those that look like us or sound like us or talk like us. We have a very hard time breaking through Think about our political discourse in America right now. A very hard time pushing through to understand, to hear, to listen, to show mercy, even when we disagree or even when we've been wronged. To have a radical forgiveness, a radical mercy, a radical compassion is what Jesus has in mind. Blessed are the pure in heart. In the Jewish world, there were a whole host of things that could make you unclean which would mean you, you weren't allowed in the covenant community, and then you weren't allowed to be where God is. And the way that that uncleanness was satisfied is you'd bring a, a sacrifice to the temple, the, the, the animal would be, would be slain, and then as a result, you were now brought back into covenant fellowship with the community. Jesus says, I'm talking about a cleansing, a purity, but it's of your heart, where you are permanently, once and for all, now washed clean to be able to see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus says. They'll be called children of God. That's easy. It sounds easy to do, but think about Jesus' context. Literally, the Israelites are under foreign occupation. The Roman government literally has troops in their, era, in their area, in their territory, and basically has them under their thumb. And Jesus says, you go be a peacemaker. Blessed are those who are persecuted because they, they fight for God's rightness, his justice. They follow me and obey me. This is this amazing portrait of the mindset that Jesus describes as the good life that, that truly sounds different, does it not? Like, as I'm articulating this, I'm like, man, imagine what a community of people that embodied this mindset would look like unleashed in this city, Unleashed in your dorm, unleashed in your sorority fraternity, unleashed on your campus, unleashed in our world. That's what Jesus has in mind, to transform the world through his people, bringing his kingdom to bear on earth as it is in heaven. He says, this is where joy is found. 
set free from the anxiety and insecurity of the rat race of this world, and instead, finding true joy with me. The vision of this sermon, the joy of the sermon. This is the good life, Jesus says, and lastly, the challenge. What do I mean by that? Um, for most of my life, even as a, as a Jesus follower, uh, I probably read this Sermon on the Mount, I, I don't know, maybe 15 times in my life, 20 times. I've taught it several times. And here's my response every time I've read it for most of my life. Until recently, I, I finally unlocked the secret to actually not reading it the way I'm about to describe. I would read the Sermon on the Mount. I'd get to the last few words of it. I'd turn the page on the Sermon on the Mount, and here's the feeling that I had in reading it. Maybe you had a similar one. As I read the Sermon on the Mount, I'd fin- finish the last few words, and my thought was, I feel so much shame in reading this. I feel like such a failure. Like, man, if this is what Jesus is after, I suck. I'm I'm not even close to this. Failure, shame. Like, Jesus talks about not being angry because when you're angry at your brother or sister, it's like you've murdered him in your heart. I'm like, fail. He's like, don't look at a woman lustfully if you commit adultery in your heart. I'm like, fail. He's like, okay, when people wrong you, you're gonna ex- extend radical mercy and forgiveness to them. I'm like, fail. He says, don't do, your, don't do your spiritual things to get attention and get applause from people around you. Fail. He says, don't be sucked into the treasures of this world. Instead, instead treasure my kingdom alone. Fail. Everybody's favorite. Don't judge other people hypocritically. Fail. And, and I would read the Sermon on the Mount, and the only thing that I could do as I turned the page was I just wanted to hang my head in shame. And you might have had a similar experience, I'm not sure. Now hear me. Jesus means for us to obey him. This is how he wants to push back against the darkness. He wants us to obey him, to take him seriously in this. So how do we push through? How do we see the Sermon on the Mount and see the beauty in it and it not crush us? I'm gonna give you two secrets as we close. Two, two secrets that I had, to, I had to understand to break through. Two secrets. The first one is this. When you see the challenge of this sermon, when you see the demands of this sermon, when you see it and your response is, I'm not worthy of this, I don't live up to it, not even close. The challenge of this in my life, not even close. I'm not worthy of that. When you say that, you're actually becoming poor in the spirit. Don't you get it? When you see the challenge of the sermon, you go, I can't do it. You're finally becoming poor in the spirit. I think Jesus would go, you're right. Now you're poor in the spirit. Now you mourn. Now you're meek. Now let's get to work and go do it. So the first secret I had to understand is Jesus wants me and he wants you to go, we're not worthy of this. It's great. Now we can start. Second secret. What's the second secret? If you don't get the second secret, then it'll, it'll never work. You'll never be able to do it. You'll never live it out. Here's the second secret. We have to see that this mindset, these attitudes, the B attitudes, 
before they can be enacted in you, adopted in your life, in your mind, in your attitudes, you have to first see that they were already adopted in him. He's already lived them out for you. He's already done it. And the second that you see that these Beatitudes are actually about him, he's the hero of the Beatitudes. And when you soak in that and let it, and let it marinate in your brain and your heart, when you actually taste it and see that it's good, then it will, for the first time, maybe set you free to go and obey him, love him, and follow him. What do I mean by that? These are really about him? What do I mean by that? Think about it. How do you and I get the riches of the kingdom? Because he became poor. He became the one who was the outcast. He went around with nothing so that you and I could have everything. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he mourned so that you and I might experience the peace of God. We might be comforted. He's the creator of the universe. He's strong. But he became meek that we would inherit the earth. On the cross, he literally says, I am thirsty. I'm, I'm thirsty because I'm hanging in this cross in your place. In his experience of the cross, now we are filled. He was shown no mercy that we might receive the mercy of God. Literally, clouds rolled in on the cross so he couldn't see that you and I have been cleansed, have access to him. No peace was extended his way so that you and I might be brought in and adopted as sons and daughters of the king. He was persecuted to the point of death that the kingdom would be yours and mine. Only when we see that he's already done it for us on our behalf will it set us free to respond by saying, Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. There's no king like this. No king would lay down his life for his people like this. And then, and only then, will we have the power to break through. So here's my challenge to you. We're gonna study this Sermon on the Mount from now until spring break. I'm gonna ask a few things of you, a little challenge. First, come, come, every, come every week. Uh, make it a priority to come and learn this amazing vision of this sermon. Here's some practical things for you and for me. First, I'm gonna ask you tomorrow, if tomorrow stinks for you, then how about Tuesday, okay? Uh, read the Sermon on the Mount all the way through at some point this week. And guess what? Each week from now till spring break, read it again all the way through. You might break it up and do chapter five on one day, chapter six another day, and then kind of study it that way. I'm gonna ask you, make it a goal by spring break to memorize five, one through 16. If you've never memorized sections of scripture before, uh, let me challenge you. It's really fruitful. If you enjoy it, some of you, uh, by the way, let me just take some of the suspense out. Don't give me the, I can't memorize scripture, I'm not good at it, or I don't have a good memory. Nobody else does. None of us do. It'll take a little bit of work, take a little bit of repetition daily uh, if you enjoy it. Let me give you a bigger challenge. Maybe say by Christmas, I'm gonna memorize the whole Sermon on the Mount. Me and a friend uh, memorized it together a few years ago. It's one of the most fruitful things that I've ever done in my, in my walk with Jesus was memorizing these words. Uh, we're about to do this in just a moment, so you'll get to experience it. I wanna ask you to pray the Lord's Prayer. Before you start your day, before you even look at your phone, turn your alarm off, then get on your knees and bow before your king. If you're a Jesus follower, then pray the Lord's Prayer. And lastly, do all of this alongside other people. 
Uh, we've got a couple of community groups that will be studying the Sermon on the Mount. Sign up. You didn't get the QR code? Come find us. Do this alongside people. Memorize the scripture alongside other people. It's way more fun to do it uh, at, with other people. We wanna get a vision for what it looks like for Jesus' kingdom to come to bear in Fayetteville. That's why we're studying this. We wanna radically follow him as our king. Uh, how we're gonna close is, uh, we've done this before. In a minute, I'm gonna ask you to come off your chair and, and we're gonna bow before the king. But here's the thing. He's the, the king that our world desperately needs. He's the savior. He's the rescue. As we bow before him, it's not in some kind of begrudging submission. It's because we delight that he's brought us into his family. And if you're here and maybe you'd say, I don't know this king. I don't know him like this. Or I thought that story about the rules and all that. I thought that's who God was and I want this. We would love to process what it looks like to see Jesus as your savior uh, I'll be sitting right here. Our team's gonna be up here. Uh, come find us after the service. We'd love to process, answer any questions that you have, talk through your doubts. We got them too. But we'd love to process what that looks like uh, together. Here's how we're gonna close. Um, if you are a Jesus follower, if not, just watch us. You think we're weird, that's fine. Uh, if you are a Jesus follower in the room, I'm gonna ask you to get off your chair and to, to find a spot. You have to move around a little bit, to, but to bend, bend the knee to the king right now as we posture our bodies literally before our king. Yeah, it's, it's hard, I know, it's, it's yeah. Uh, I got the words on the screen. Um, go with whatever version you've memorized the Lord's Prayer in, uh, even if we don't sound exactly the same. But uh, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Jesus, you're our king. And we bow before you, not because uh, you're, you're the buzzkill for life and we have to get under your thumb or we go to hell. We bow before you because what else, do we, what else would we do to such an amazing king such an, um, who gave so much for us, who brought us to the banquet table when we were living out in the gutter in our sin. Wow, what a picture you've given us here, and we wanna embody it. We can only do that by first seeing who you are. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done for us. We will follow you as king, no matter what it costs, because you are worthy of it, even though we're not. We give you the glory, the honor, and the praise as our king. Amen. Just stand, let's sing.
imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality then shall come to pass the saying that is written death is swallowed up in victory oh death where is your victory oh death where is your sting the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law but thanks be to God gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ You were the 
Just think about the love of our king. He's exalted, but not on a throne, lifted up to a cross. He has a crown, but it's not gold. It's a crown of thorns. God so loved the world that he sent his only son. That's our king. So we follow him, we love him, chase after him. To whom else would we go? Nothing compares to the beauty and the wonder and the power of this king. And so that's what we're gonna do from now till spring break. We wanna see what it would look like if his people just began to radically follow him as their king. So tomorrow morning, Lord's Prayer. Tomorrow, pull out the Sermon on the Mount. Let's start to live it, start to follow him, to trust him. Bless for the poor in spirit after all. Uh, uh, just a couple things by way of announcements. So we had small groups will start. They're gonna start uh, in a week. We have most of our small groups meet on Tuesday night. So uh, come come talk to us if you have questions about them. Um, if you haven't, if you don't follow us on Instagram, do so in case we have like a snow situation or COVID, something happens, then you'll know kind of what's going on around here. That's how we communicate. Uh, but we love you guys. Uh, had a, I hope you had a great first week back. We'll have a great week. We'll see y'all right back here next week. Have a great week, everybody.